This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Once upon a time, a time long, long ago, in a land not so far, far away, there began to be discussion about green bins and green bin waste and recycling. And that discussion has continued on. And yesterday, did it reach a happily ever after? Let's find out. Jay Stanford joins us, Director of Environmental Programs and Solid Waste at the City of London, as we look back to yesterday's Civic Works Committee meeting. Jay, great to talk with you. How are things? Hey, wonderful, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me on. And, and it, this is a wonderful topic to talk about, and we've been doing this for far too many years. We've started off a few with Once Upon a Time, so how close do we sit to Happily Ever After? We'll put it this way. We had an excellent conversation with our elected officials yesterday at the Civic Works Committee. They're very supportive of what the community has provided in the last eight weeks in the way of input to the design of the Green Bin program. So, Mike, we, we, are, we are moving along uh, very, very well on all of this. But I'm going to put out a cautionary note because people are so keen about this program, they have to understand that the final design the purchase of collection vehicles, the procurement process to select a place for the materials to be handled, all of that still takes time. So this will not be occurring this year. I guess if I'm going to be a bit of a downer, I just want to emphasize that. We're looking at late, say, the fall of 2022. I know that's disappointing, but, Mike, we are are so close, and we've had great community input. Let's chat about that. Okay, well, let's talk about some of that community input in a moment. We'll we'll get to some of the numbers that have been in the the works in the mix as well. So, overall, how do you feel Londoners are viewing a green bin program? What would be the general consensus you've had after years of talking to people and running a pilot project and all of that sort of thing? I, I think the majority are as keen, if not keener, than ever before. And in some respects, they're, they're you know, let's, let's be honest here. They're a little embarrassed that we're this far behind. So, you know, just, just putting the cards on the table there, Mike. Um, so, so they're keen. But there's also a group out there that says, hey, I, I compost at home and I won't be using this program. Uh, so, you know, we have to carefully design it to meet the, the needs of the majority of Londoners. So um, I, I, the readiness here in this community, Mike, it's great to see. So that's that's a real positive piece that we've uh, seen and heard in the last eight weeks. We're talking with Jay Stanford, Director of Environmental Programs and Solid Waste at the City of London. Jay, let's go to what you just pointed out. There are going to be questions as to why has it taken London this long? So why has it? You know, Mike, it's, I, I ask that myself too. But this is a community of a lot of priorities, whether they're environmental priorities, other types of community priorities, downtown priorities. They've been with us for a number of years. So our elected officials, working with staff, have to balance those priorities. We, we can only spend, uh, you know, so much per year. So let, let's, let, let's face it, you can't have everything. Uh, so in our case here, we, you know, we've been working on waste diversion, recycling, home composting, and we divert 45% of the materials that once went to landfill. So we're doing a great job that way. 
the green bin will push us well up into the mid 50% waste diver- uh, mid 50% waste diversion on the road to the 60% which is our target so when we talk about waste diversion, one of the other topics that certainly has come up is our landfill. Old Is it W-12A? Is that the fancy name for it? That's the technical term. <laughs> W-12A. And we've, we've looked at expansion issues there. What can you tell us about W-12A and what you've heard recently? Well, we, we also had a report yesterday uh, at Civic Works, and it was discussing the expansion of W-12A. Uh, our landfill site. We've been there since 1977, uh, and we're looking at another 25 years capacity. And that's been part of uh, the project. Uh, The environmental assessment is a a provincially prescribed process that requires huge amounts of community engagement and technical work. And we've reached a key part where uh, we've got a draft proposal of what it looks like for the future, and that will be out for uh, community input as well as part of one of the final stages before we submit our documents into the provincial government. Uh, Mike, Mike, we're going to be increasing the height of the landfill site, protecting space for the future use of uh, residents uh, and businesses of London, and potentially some of our local neighbours if they get into disposal capacity issues. But along the way, Council has made a commitment for waste diversion, green bin, and looking to the future of additional resource recovery on keeping materials out of the landfill site. Jay, we live in a world of contingency plans. You can set a plan and then, well, wait a minute, it's not going to work. That's kind of pandemic-related for the most part. But contingency plans come up elsewhere. If the province didn't approve this, is there a contingency plan for what we could do? Uh, well, y- yes, it would be shipping our garbage out of London, which is a very costly approach, and it is not a desirable one. So, yes, we do have a contingency plan. We also have the opportunity, if need be, with the provincial government to uh, highlight why we need an additional one or two years while the wrinkles are being worked out. So so there are clearly backup plans that other municipalities have used in the past. Uh, We believe, though, Mike, what we've done to date uh, is going to meet the needs of the provincial government. And most importantly, uh, we're, we're doing our best to meet the needs of the local community around the landfill site. And that's not easy to meet their needs but we hopefully can work closely with them into the future as well. Jay Stanford joining us as we talk green bins and landfills and, well, what Jay is an expert in, environmental programs and solid waste at the City of London. Jay, just one more thing, and that is the impact green bins could have on that landfill. What do we think will happen? Well, we're going to add about... 10% 10% more to our waste diversion. Now, that's from the residential waste stream, Mike. That's the stuff that you and I produce. We've got to work on programs to help people who live in uh, the multi-residential sector, and we're looking at some good ideas there. So our goal is to turn the organic that was once being sent to landfill site into a resource. Along the way, that creates some good local jobs. Uh, so that's going to be the good news, plus it reduces greenhouse gas generation which helps our climate emergency action plan plans as well. Okay. And in terms of it, we just got a, a note from Bruce, and Bruce says, any idea what we will or will not be allowed to put into green bins? Are we close to that yet, at least to have a couple of options? We, we've narrowed it down to two options, and we're going to have the marketplace bid on both. One is a green bin that just contains sort of your traditional food scraps, soiled paper, 
cooking oils and grease and household plants, very common in other municipalities. We are going to look at a second option where we would add in pet waste. And that would be, uh, well, let's call it what it is, dog poop uh, and potentially kitty litter. So these are, are sort of the, the, the final decisions, but that's not delaying the process. We're going to have the market tell us how they can handle those two items as part of the uh, green bin organic stream. And I guess as a last, last question, Jay, the cost of this, the ballpark, does it sit where it once did, or have we seen rising costs over the years? Uh, no, it, it's hanging in there right now until we get the cost back from the private sector. We're still looking at a program, though, Mike, that is in the order of about uh, about $5 million a year annually. That's about in the range of $30 a household, give or take. Uh, and there's a capital investment for the carts that are required, the kitchen catchers, uh, and some new vehicles to collect the green bin material. That could be anywhere between 12 and $15 million, and that would carry forward over about a, a five- to seven-year period. So there is an environmental investment here that has been sort of well-known and, and chatted about on your show and in various documents we've produced. So uh, consistent with what other municipalities have been paying, that's one of the best parts, Mike, is that we get to learn from our colleagues in other communities in Ontario to make sure we put in place the best of the best out there, and that is our goal here in London. Jay, really appreciate the update on this. We're a lot further away from once upon a time and a lot closer to that happily ever after, it sounds. Keep safe, and I know we'll be talking soon. Thanks, Mike, and uh, you too. All right, be good. Bye-bye. That is Jay Stanford, Director of Environmental Programs and Solid Waste at the City of London. So, one of the big questions that everybody has is, why Why is it taking this long? And Jay says, well, there are priorities in the city. In other words, this has taken a back seat a couple of times, but there's enough of a push now to say, hey, this needs to be there. This needs to happen. And will it add to things at the landfill? Yes. Are there questions about the landfill? Yes. And Jay even outlined that the contingency plan is not one that they want to have to entertain and that is simply to truck garbage out of this area we don't want to become one of those areas that has garbage trucked away so here's hoping they can get that agreement from the province based on the proposal and we'll continue to follow that story very closely obviously okay we don't like to cause blood to boil on this show we don't, we don't need that we don't need that but we do at the same time need to keep you informed on things and some of the things they're not all that fun to hear and a lot of times that's just COVID-19 in a nutshell but it's also some other things as well we're going to get to one of those things in just a moment Luke Evangelista of the London Knights slash Chicago Wolves is going to join us in about 11 minutes from now we're going to talk about a great initiative and an amazing time in June that happens annually that will now involve someone from this area. We'll do that in a little over a half hour from now. But I want everybody just to just to take a breath, okay? This this is something that's very important to do during the day. Some deep breaths. We learned that a few weeks ago. I remember that. I'm still trying. I'm still and I feel more relaxed. All right, deep breath. You got that? 
There's a second one, just thrown in for good measure. Because what we are going to talk about right now could cause some of your blood to boil, at least heat a little. Jay Goldberg joins us, Interim Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Jay, I'm going to give it one more. Breath in, out. Okay, Jay, what are we talking about? So today we're talking about the fact that our members of Parliament, so our members of Parliament who go to work at the House of Commons, uh, tomorrow will be getting a $3,200 pay raise uh, in the middle of this pandemic and with over 700,000 Canadians still out of work. I'm going to need to take another one of those breaths. Uh, a $3,000 plus pay raise in the middle of a pandemic. All right, well, let's kind of probe deeper into this a little bit. Was this a scheduled pay raise? Yes, so the Trudeau government over the last few years has scheduled uh, pay raises for members of parliament. Uh, it's set to be about 1.8%, and that equates to $3,200. Uh, if you can believe it, our members of parliament are getting paid $182,000 a year. And one really great fun fact for you is that the Minister of Middle Class Prosperity uh, will be getting a raise to now earn $270,000, placing her firmly not in the middle class gap uh, like many of us. <laughs> there's, there's our dose of irony for the day, isn't it? Maybe for the week. All right, Jay, you pay very close attention to this, and we're talking with Jay Goldberg, who is the Interim Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Jay, at any time, have you heard discussion about, maybe this isn't such a good time for this scheduled pay raise, let's put this off. Have you heard any of that? Uh, well, so not officially. Last year, about 200 MPs, and we have 338, so about 200 of them, uh, were convinced to donate their raises to charity. So obviously that was a very good thing, and that's what we should be really looking for this year. Of course, the raises shouldn't be happening at all, but we'd like to see you know, all 338 members of Parliament who are getting these raises donated to charity at a time when Canadians are really in need. Okay, and now that that has been stated, have... You heard any response to that? Anybody say, you know what, that's exactly what I'm going to do, that's a great idea? Anybody? Yes, yeah, so some of the members of Parliament who did it last year are intending to do it this year. Um, you know, obviously 200 sounds like a great number, but that still means 138 taking the raises and not donating the money to charity. You know, our MPs are in the top 2% of income earners in this country, and, you know, $182,000 is, is pretty darn good, and it's just, um, you know, unconscionable that they could be taking these raises at a time when Canadians are in such a tough position. And I might also add that our Prime Minister will be getting a $6,400 raise. And is that simply the 1.8% the but translated to his salary? Exactly. So he makes over $350,000 a year. Which, you know what, Jay, I don't know how you feel about that, but you think about the leader of a country, as much as we can say, well, you know, 180000 you can have whatever opinion you want on that. But in a world where athletes and movie stars are making millions, you would think to be the leader of a country under four hundred grand, 
doesn't it, and I know it sounds it sounds strange, but I always find it odd that we've got that kind of a, a price tag, and you think leader of the country, I, you would think they would be up there with some of the top end CEOs. Yeah, you might think that uh, in Westminster systems, though, we have a tradition of. Um, I wouldn't say reasonable. Three hundred sixty-five thousand is a heck of a lot of money, but we haven't seen any examples of, uh, you know, something particularly egregious like a million dollars or two million, as you're alluding to a sports celebrity. But even the president of the United States makes less than five hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, so most leaders of countries are not making uh, anywhere near, you know, uh, soccer player or baseball player salaries. Jay Goldberg joining us, Interim Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. As we look at a scheduled raise that some MPs, well, all MPs will be getting, all 338 members of Parliament, some have said they will give it to charity. Others have not stated that. Jay, do you think this is coming up as a surprise to anybody? Could someone have knocked on a door and said, hey... Instead of this becoming a story, instead of causing some blood to heat or perhaps even boil slightly, maybe we do this another time. Or is this just, hey, it was on the books, let's let's just move along? Well, I would say that it's important to look at other levels of government. So Ontario really took uh, the lead during the 2008-2009 Great Recession, and they froze wages for members of provincial parliament back in 2008. Those wages have been frozen ever since. So Ontario MPPs are actually making far, far less than members of parliament. Uh, And there was a discussion just a few months ago, uh, there was an article published in the Toronto Star suggesting that, you know, our MPPs need a raise. Uh, They haven't gotten a raise for a long time, but the provincial Ford government said, no, we're not doing that in this kind of economic circumstance. So it's certainly an option available. Uh, for the government to decide, the federal government to decide, you know, maybe we shouldn't do this. And I would wager that if the prime minister or someone in the federal cabinet were to introduce legislation freezing wages, I don't think there would be too many members of parliament voting against that because they feel the wrath of the public. Well, there will be wrath over this. How long it lasts, I don't know. It'll just be people throwing their hands up and saying, "Eh, here we go again. But I hope that the ones that are taking this and donating it to charity, I hope they do get their due in all of this. Jay, we really appreciate you monitoring things like this for us. Keep up the great work. All right. Thanks for having me, Mike. That's Jay Goldberg, Interim Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, about a scheduled 1.8% raise. And if you take the roughly just a little over $3,200, and you multiply that by the 338 MPs that we have in this country, you wind up with a total of about $1.1 million, a little over $1.1 million. But if some of that's going into charity, why wouldn't all of it be going into charity? Why Why wouldn't it? I don't. I don't have a good answer for that but i again i do hope that the mps who are saying hey we'll take this and and we'll put it to different use during this pandemic i hope that people do find out about that all right we have to talk about the other people in the house not the parents not the kids but the pets specifically the dogs because this has been an adjustment period for 
a number of reasons, some of them very difficult, some of them just inconvenient, some of them have actually worked out okay. If you are someone who is at home more often because work has been more than sporadic over the last year, if you're someone who has been working from home, then your pets have been noticing that. Normally you leave and then you come back at a certain time and depending on how you deal with your pets they may wait for you by the front door always seem to know when you're going to get home but when you're around all the time well that might set up a brand new routine and joining us right now from ultimates is our very good friend and one of the best dog trainers on this planet melissa millet melissa how are things I'm great. That's a great intro. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it is fantastic to have you here. And before we even get into talking about dogs, I happen to see a little something on Instagram. Are, are, can can I can I ask you about what it was that you posted on on your Ultimates Instagram? Yeah, um, I, I, it's all I can say is that I posted, but something really excited. I'm actually in a quarantine three-day hotel as we speak. I just got back from California. We auditioned on America's Got Talent in front of the celebrity judges. Whoa! Yeah. All right, then that then I was I was I can believe what I was seeing. That <laughs> is tremendous. Now, hey, we all know how these shows work. If you're on a show, you are sworn to secrecy as to what may have played out, but in the future could we maybe talk about this at some point oh absolutely and you know we can catch it i don't know when exactly but this summer you know you can find out what the judges said and see which animals we brought and how it worked out outstanding okay well let's definitely watch for that and we'll give you more information as we get a little closer to whatever date it is that that episode starts to air. Uh, Melissa, how about the fact that we've lived different lives over the past year? Some people are at home because, again, work has been sporadic. Uh, some are at home because you're now working from home. Do pets take notice of that? Do dogs in particular take notice of the fact that, hey, wait a minute, don't you usually leave at 730? You're still here. And you're, you're still here yesterday, all day. Are they noticing that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's such a great time to get a dog, and it's such a difficult time to get a dog because you are there for, for them, and you're able to give them everything that they need or more that they need. But we do have to remember that what they do need is time alone. And if they don't get that, then it's going to be a big shock to their system. And it's really important to integrate that into your daily life and to remember um, what life is going to look like when it returns post-COVID. Let's say that the time alone has kind of been impossible because we're supposed to stay at home and, and we haven't been giving our pets time alone. Is it possible to reintroduce that for a dog that maybe had been used to being by themselves for a matter of hours during the day? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we're doing is we're recreating it in our space um, by putting them in their crates in a room for quiet time. Um, this is also really good when you are at home and you work at home and you have a young dog or puppy. But I think it's a lifelong skill that all dogs should be able to be put away in another room quietly, ongoing anyway. But in terms of returning to work, you know, we should be revisiting their crate training, putting them in another room so that, and, and putting the music up um, with a daily routine so that it looks like 
you know, it replicates a smaller version of when we're going to work. It doesn't have to be the full eight hours. It can be four hours or five hours. Um, but during that time, dogs are generally sleeping anyway. If we notice they have activity peaks in the morning, they have activity peaks in the afternoon. So it works out really well that they just sleep most of the time that we're gone anyway. So you mentioned putting the music up. What do you mean by putting the music up? So putting the music up can uh, allow them to... Now, they're not... They're going to know that you're home, but it can create um, some white noise so they don't hear you and they don't want to access you. And it's it's something that you can replicate more easily when you're gone. Um, Also, there's music... There's, you can just play the radio, or you could actually play um, through a dog's ear, which is music that's actually built for um, and scientifically proven to calm dogs down if they get anxious when you go. But what basically what we try to do is keep the dog in a room far away. You're going to be in the basement working so that you can recreate being without them without actually leaving them. Because the tricky thing is, is that when you do leave the house, you should be taking the dog with you because there's two pieces to having a dog. They need to get outside and they need to be left alone. And those are the two pieces that we're missing with COVID. We are talking with Melissa Millett from Ultimates and we are talking about looking at that routine that has changed for the pets in our home and the fact that if you are home, yeah, it might be time to say one of these days I'm not going to be as home as much because work will come back or I'll be going back to work, whatever it happens to be. So what do we do then? We hear the dogs like routine. You've told us that before. So what would be a good routine for a dog? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so knowing what we need to do, how do we do it is a big question. Um, everything is done in baby steps. So you, you don't want to just push the dog to put them in a crate or a room and let them cry it out because then they could develop a negative association. You want them to feel calm and confident and positive about this. So um, what I start with, I start differently for dogs that need to be trained for separation and dogs that have issues with separation anxiety. Dogs with separation anxiety start to feel stressed at picking up the keys and jackets. You need to actually start there with those dogs and and separate and make those things a positive by picking up the keys and treating and putting on the jacket and treating. And moreover, likely getting professional help to ensure that your time is spent um, doing it correctly. But for a dog that doesn't really have issues, you're just, you know, they don't like it, but they're not stressed by it, then you're going to, um, you're going to start with baby steps. You're going to start with an X-Pen and put the dog in the X pen next to you while you're cooking. You get them comfortable inside the pen, not at a distance. You can sit inside the X pen. And for anybody that doesn't know what an X pen is, that, that looks like um, a playpen. It's a crate that opens up, and it gives you a space with an open top, and it's, it gives you a larger open space. You can put toys inside, stuffed tongs, and you're going to start there beside you in the kitchen and move it farther and farther away. Uh, also, it should be noted, never leave your dog unattended in next pen. It's just a great area to keep them engaged and start them with their separation. Once that goes well in an next pen, then you can take a crate, and, and you know you might have to introduce them slowly if they've never seen a crate with the treats inside and slowly closing the door. But you can once they get comfortable in a larger open space, then you can start putting them in a crate with all sorts of delicious things like stuffed tongs 
and um, and close the door in the room with them, intermittently treating, decrease the duration between the treats, and start to move the crate further and further until it's inside another room. We are getting tips on dealing with pets that may have to spend a little bit more time on their own in the future or may have to go back to spending some time on their own with Melissa Millett from In Dogs We Trust and Ultimates. You can find In Dogs We Trust online at indogswetrust.ca. All right, so that would be the, the routine of things and, and finding a way to get dogs to be okay being in a crate. Is it... A good suggestion to have a dog, no matter what dog, in a crate? Or some people will just shut the door and that will be it. Is that a possibility? Can you leave them in a, a room or even say, hey, the house is yours, don't have any parties, and leave? Yeah. Well, we want to we do, as we say, set up that routine. You know, you want to you start with morning activities to, really, to give them the mental stimulation exercise that they need. That would be your walk or your puzzles. Or your uh, licky mats are really, really cool. You should look those up um, online. Licky mats, stuffed Kongs, really give them a lot to do in the morning. Then you can put them in their crate. I'm doing like 10 to 2.30 p.m. So that's the time when dogs would sleep anyway. Um, and then you're going to, that consistency is just going to create an expectation. Um, and then they expect that that's what's going to happen and they're not going to fight it as much. So the routine really is good. Um, but you have to ensure that you're meeting all their needs for exercise and mental stimulation before you before you ask them to be contained. And this is a great time for it because we're home more. I do believe that all dogs should be crated um, or crate trained. There's multiple reasons. One, for safety, dogs should always be in crates. Um, even giving the lessons that I give, I work with dogs that are overexcited or reactive. And when the dog is outside of the crate, they get worked up easy. And they, uh, or they can get reactive and it's hard to manage them safely, but it's also hard to manage their behavior because once they spike and they get excited, it takes a second to calm them down. But I remember I had a friend and he got a dog and I said, let me give you a tip that most people don't do. If you want a dog that you can bring everywhere with you, you should crate your dog in various environments and while you're home. And he didn't end up doing it. And later on, uh, that day, while he was visiting me, his dog got really overstimulated. It was tired. It started behaving poorly because it was a young dog. And he said, what do I do right now? Well, your dog's tired, and your dog has no place to rest. If your dog was crate trained, you could open the door so there was airflow and put your dog in the crate in your vehicle, let your dog nap for two hours. Then you'd have a dog that's not cranky from being tired. That's, that's one benefit. Another is down the line, he called me, and he said, my... Uh, my wife's sister is getting married. We need to bring the dog, but their dogs don't get along with other dogs. What can we do? And if your dogs were all crate trained, you could rotate the dogs. But when you don't have crate trained dogs, somebody's dog has to go to a kennel. So it just opens up your possibility of bringing your dog places. So I'm, I'm all for crates, um, not just for preventing separation anxiety, but for, for bringing your dog everywhere with you as well. That's a great point because ultimately we, we love on this show to try and put ourselves in the other shoes of someone but even if you're not wearing shoes i don't know whether dog booties in the winter are necessary or not uh i've, I've never i've never known that uh but i know that they're out there but if you're trying to live in the shoes of a dog a crate is their space right that that's like their portable room oh yeah 
I mean, that's what that's the way that we manage our animals so they have a place to rest so they don't get overstimulated. So crate training is something that you have to teach them to be comfortable with in some cases because if they're busy, you know. But it, it actually decreases their stress down the line because in those two situations, the dogs could have a nap or nobody's dog has to go to a kennel. Or if your dog is nervous, we just put a blanket over top. Or if they're overstimulated, putting a blanket over top gives your dog an opportunity to sleep. And, you know, in in all the puppies that we see, a lot of the problems come from not, them not getting enough rest. Then they get mouthy. Then they start to show naughty behaviors. And people don't make the connection that the dog's not getting enough sleep. So, you know, there's a lot going on there for having their own space. Melissa Miller joining us from In Dogs We Trust. Melissa, anything else you can think of that may be helpful for a transition? How how early should you begin it? How soon do you begin it if you know that, okay, I'm going back to work on this date or I'm starting a new job on this date and I'm not going to be as home, at home as much? That's a really good question. Uh, puppies are really connected to you t- until about four months of age. So if we have a choice, we're going to uh, we're gonna not force it. Let them find their their separation from you when it would naturally occur about four months of age and just start doing it piece by piece start now because it's a lifestyle choice that is good for your dog's health a lot of people would wait to the last second until there's not a lot of time you're really going to be reducing your dog's stress so uh, now is the time to begin and start integrating it into your day Melissa, fantastic stuff as always, and I I can't wait to see what the connection to America's Got Talent is all about as we look into the future. Keep safe and uh, enjoy what you are up to, and we'll see you back in London soon. Great. Thanks for having me. That is Melissa Millett from In Dogs We Trust and, of course, Ultimates. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.